Hello, everyone, and welcome to The In-Between. I'm your host, Naomi Loud, and we are at the end of the memoir series, episode 10. Oh my god! I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who's been involved in uh, listening to this series and reaching out and telling me um, how it's resonated or anything really anything anything I'm just very very happy that uh it's not just me dwindling away in a corner working on it for years on end and it's now out in the open and reaching people and so I am grateful honestly every day to know that um I was able to put this into words and If it can help someone, at least one person, then I've done my job and that's it, you know? I feel like I've been able to create a a really nice, safe, and awesome community, especially on Instagram. And uh, I'm just, you know, really happy on how everything is sort of moving into a direction that I've always wanted. And, and yeah... So thank you. And I love you all. So without further ado, this is episode 10, Time Forgot to Change My Heart. Spring 2019. As I walk outside, I notice the snow melting, the promise of spring faint but distinct in the day's wind. It makes me want to drink. It makes me want to pick up a beer from the corner store and chug it all down with one large gulp. This smell, this earthy smell emanating from the soil, rustling the trees giving life to everything but me, reminds me of three specific years. Three years of debauchery. Of drinking so heavily, it seems so utterly normal. It smells like Sawyer, like working in an Irish pub, partying all night and sleeping all day. This is when the ghost of Sawyer comes back to haunt me, even after years of avoiding him in the city. Sawyer isn't just an ex. He is someone who has carved his name into my psyche, and I'm still not sure how to erase it without hurting myself in the process. Will I be stuck with his shadow forever? Just like how I'm stuck with the memories of all my other traumas sticking to me like tape. I try to rip them off me, but it hurts and I give up. Somehow, April was always a devastating month for Sora and I. And thus, the compounded memories of fights, breakups, and blackouts are triggered as soon as I walk out the door and into the streets. The sun welcomes me while simultaneously reminding me of the worst times in my life. The change of seasons is always the hardest. I miss the times when fall used to smell like school and Halloween, but now it's replaced by the fragrance of depression, dark nights spent wondering how I was still alive, and of course Sawyer. He's left an imprint, 
I will never forget him, and knowing him, I'm sure he'd be proud of that fact. His ghost still lingers where it's not welcome. I wonder if he thinks of me as I think of him, unwanted. How many times did he tell me nothing would ever compare to what we had, to what our relationship meant to me, to us, and he's right, nothing has. No one has ever made me cry like he has. No one has ever made me wish I'd never wake up after one of our fights. He's right, no one will ever compare. I haven't seen him in years, but my mind still thinks it will, and it fears it. I can't enjoy a sunny day's walk without having an eventual jolt of thinking I might run into him. Although I know he lives on the other side of the city, my mind continues to play tricks on me. I repeat what-ifs, preparing for a disaster, but disaster never comes. What if he moved right in front of my house? What if he's in the bar that I'm about to walk into? Every man in a crowd wearing a beard holds the potential of Sawyer whether I like it or not. Does he think about me as I do him? Does his heart squeeze one size smaller as he passes haunted places we used to visit together? Does his breath quicken when the perfume of springtime rises up from the soil and catches him by surprise? Do his dreams still feel heavy with his presence whether or not he wants me in his dreams, his conscious mind having no control over it? Dreams so real he can't imagine ever waking up. When will the city stop whispering his name? Trauma as my ex-lover. It promises to stay by my side forever. I can't control it, but at least I can try to heal from it. It's a slow process, healing. So Sawyer's face appears and reappears in other men, strangers in crowded places. He's made me hyper-aware. The whiplash so unpredictable, so unnameable, that I need to have looked at every corner of a public area to make sure he's not there. I need to make sure he's not near me before I can relax. I avoid the places where we used to drink together. They feel cursed, and they most likely are. But then, somebody I used to know by Gotye comes on, and I feel trapped all over again. I time travel through the melody, and Sawyer feels even closer, as if he still exists as the giant force which took over my life so long ago. I look outside. It's sunny. The birds are finally chirping after a long, sleepy winter, and my brain chemistry, my traumatized heart, still breathes the same air as I once did. How many times have we been so close but never crossed paths? I rather not know. Because there was a time when Montreal did not feel safe, and I'm trying my hardest to replace the jagged edges with memories of beautiful things. I try to live in the present moment where my life is safe, but there's a part of me I can't control, a part of me still triggered, whispering to me worst-case scenarios as I try to navigate a city full of ghosts. I'm sitting with Rose against the bar at Honey's when I see Sawyer walk in the door. He's then immediately followed by a girl I've never seen before. I choke on my beer, laughing out of shock. I shove Rose in the ribs, prompting her to look at what I've just witnessed. Sawyer's holding her hand, his bag slung over her shoulder. Somehow, that's what I focus on and view the act as deeply sacrilegious. I freeze while Sawyer passes by me, still holding onto the girl's hand as he guides her through the crowd. Sawyer's mask never cracks and not once does he look at me. It's only been nine days since our bathroom fight at Burgundy Lion, and Sawyer is acting like mystery punk rock girl is his girlfriend. Meanwhile, he's refused any sort of PDA with me for months after his breakup with Katie out of respect. It's obvious this is revenge. I stare directly at them as they share a not-so-private moment near the stage. 
She giggles, smiling at Sawyer, as he acts playful and leans over to kiss her. I'm paralyzed to my seat and have to convince Rose not to stand up and publicly yell at Sawyer. As much as I want her to, I don't want him to win. It's naive of me, but I still view Sawyer as mine. When my shock eventually wears off, betrayal washes over my entire body. A feeling so absolute, it makes me reach for my drink, holding it close to my chest. I wonder how Sawyer has the sheer will to keep up with his deliberate knife-and-heart moment for this long, and so blatantly close to me too. As the night progresses, his behavior never wavers. It just gets worse. At one point, Sawyer is standing right next to my stool with his back to me, his arm locked around punk rock girl's waist as I repeatedly kick his left calf. I'm in awe of his capability to ignore me. A few hours later, I sit by myself in a booth, drunk and miserable, when Owen's friend, who I had met a couple weeks ago, sit next to me. He leans in over the music. Isn't that your boyfriend? Pointing to Sawyer. Yes, and no. I mean, we just broke up. He's only doing this to get back at me for sleeping with Owen. He pauses and looks back at Sawyer. That's fucked up. He's clearly using her. I know her. She's a nice girl. She doesn't deserve that either. I nod limply and stare down at my drink, unwilling to look at them any longer. After the bar, I stumble back up the hill towards my house while I fish out my cell phone from my coat pocket. I close my right eye, staring at the screen, trying to fix my double vision, and start typing out angry words onto the screen. You know, that girl who told you you were going to beat your wife and kids wasn't wrong about you. I press send, still zigzagging my way up the hill. I'm referencing a story Sawyer once told me of a girl he knew in elementary school. She sat in front of him in class and one day, unprompted, she turned around to face Sawyer and yelled, You'll beat your wife and kids one day! Sawyer had been shocked, and the comment stayed with him for years. When Sawyer recounted this to me, I saw how much he believed the truth in his words. How could someone ever say that about him? But for me... The story had resonated inside like a mirrored truth, like something I had already experienced but couldn't quite formulate the words. Before reaching my building, Sawyer has already texted back. What did I even do wrong? You fucked Owen. We're even. I waver on the snowy sidewalk, my tears steaming on my cheeks. He can't see the difference in his actions, and I'm not about to win this argument and decide to block his number for the night. When I finally get home and crawl into bed, visions of Sawyer kissing somebody else replays in my mind. I still can't admit how bad I'm hurting, how tonight has ripped a part of me into shreds and I'm just left here bleeding. But when I wake up the next morning, the numbing effect I was surviving on has evaporated. I lay still, the same vision as the night before replaying in my head, and the thought of him with her makes me physically sick. The single entry in my journal that day describes my overall mental health for the next few weeks. I write, sold, died, and leave it at that. Sawyer has called my bluff, and he's finally broken me open. Sawyer warned me. I am nothing without him. Aside from two slices of pizza and a bowl of soup, I barely eat for the next five days. Secretly, I'm pleased. I now have a valid reason to starve myself. The control and momentum I gained since our last breakup in August, almost eight months ago, has been ripped out of under me and Sawyer has finally successfully flipped the favors back to his side. The only way I can describe how I feel is complete shock. Mind, body, and soul. As if I witness a heinous act and it's now caught in my mind in a feverish loop. 
Nausea rises up my throat daily as I continue to replay their kiss over and over in my head. I lay in bed feeling sorry for myself as I watch Grey's Anatomy, experiencing Meredith Grey's heartbreak like it's my own. I cry from the deep well of tears inside of me. I cry for all the things I know nothing about but is rotting inside of me nonetheless. I cry for the memories of my childhood I cannot remember. I cry for four years straight, our relationship the perfect cover for all the hurt I'm unwilling to see deep inside of me. I'm crying for the wounds which have no name. Sawyer is the beautiful manifested chaos swirling inside of me. I long for the time where I was too distracted to miss Sawyer. I loop our last kiss in my head, heartbroken to now realize that it had been our last. I become desperate all over again. The kind Sawyer loves but pushes away like a cat toying with a dying bird. I call him and he picks up, repeating, it's over, as I cry over the phone. Sawyer's moving on. I've made my choice. Seeing him with another girl has debilitated me and I don't want Sawyer. I need him like I need my next fix and my body aches in withdrawal. I have three months left in the shithole of a city and I can't bear the thought of Sawyer with someone else while I'm still here. The thought of fighting with Sawyer at this magnitude for another 90 days drains me from my own pride. Sawyer and I are bound for life no matter how broken up we seem to be. A week later, after much persistence, Sawyer finally allows me to come over to talk. I run to the metro and head to his neighborhood as fast as I can, nervous he'll change his mind. I knock on his apartment door. He answers, barely smiling. His hair is messy and his dark beard scruffy, a look I love and can't help but smile. How does he still feel like home, like the broken home of my past? Unlike Sawyer, I never hold my grudges for long and I'm quick to forgive. He takes me in his arms, his warm chest against mine. I breathe in deeply, taking him all in, a powerful drug and mood enhancer. Sawyer has me exactly where he wants me, and I have no idea to what extent I'm currently being manipulated. Sometimes I even wonder if he even knows how much he manipulated me. Is he a mastermind, or just a broken 37-year-old man acting like a child? All I want is the pain to stop, and the only way I know how is to have sex with Sawyer. We stay up all night drinking Maker's Mark, doing coke and having sex on his futon. The next day, I write in my journal, Woke up in love again? Sex is where we exist as one. It's where we make sense, and I know it's the only way to get him back. In the morning, I head to the bathroom and sit down to pee. The bathroom is bright, the morning sun peeking in from the window and through the shower curtain. I can see every little speck of dust on the floor illuminated by the rays and notice then long strands of brown hair sticking to the tub. I have short hair. I've always had short hair. These are definitely not mine. This girl has been here. She's been naked exactly where I'm now standing. I walk back into the living room and sit down next to Sawyer. What the fuck is up with the hairs in the bathroom? What hairs? Sawyer, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You could have at least cleaned your bathroom before I came over. He lies and tells me he didn't know the hairs were there, but admits to it a few weeks later, telling me he left them there on purpose. Just another simple knife to the heart. Her name is Tracy, and for most of the week before seeing Sawyer at Honey's, he slept at her place. How Sawyer acts with Tracy is different than what I've done with Owen. Owen was an attempt to get the fuck out. Sawyer and Tracy, on the other hand, sounds like a budding relationship. A fucking couple. 
It becomes clear to me then that Surya can't stand to be alone and will easily jump from one relationship to the next. Fuck this, I think. Tracy isn't going to win. I've been fighting for Sora for the past three fucking years, and he'll stay mine until I'm gone. She can have him after. It takes half of the month of May for Sora to warm up to me again, but he keeps me on a leash. Behind closed doors, Sora is as mean as ever, leaving me emotionally and physically drained, but I stay complacent and take it. I've been well-trained. My days still consist mostly of crying in bed all day before my shifts. He often refuses to tell me he loves me, but I never waver and stand by his side, accepting whatever time he allots for us. I pretend things are getting better. I barely go out anymore and spend every waking moment I can with him. I'm even avoiding Owen as another proof that I'm a thousand percent Sawyer's. One day, while I'm hanging out with Rose at her place, I pick up my phone and call him. When Sawyer answers, I hear an echo through the receiver and realize I can hear him from the open window. Since we had been texting before a call, he knew where I was. He was in the neighborhood and was sitting in the park next to Rose's place when he took the call. I run down the stairs as soon as I realize, excited to see him. He sits on the bench, his left arm stretching along the seat as I approach him. He's full of resistance, but keeps a sly smile while refusing to kiss me or hold hands. He loves it. I can tell in his smile. He dangles the possibility of us above my eyes while simultaneously denying me of his affection and punishing me for what I've done with Owen. Whatever happened with Tracy doesn't count. His actions never count. He slept with her after I fucked Owen. Those are the rules. Whether or not that detail is even true never even crossed my mind. He always has me convinced I'm the bigger asshole. We then play who's the biggest victim for the remainder of the month as I pretend to be happy with my soulmate by my side. I even revive an old tactic of mine, of always being around even when I'm not. In case he breaks up with me or ignores me for too long, I hide eight heart-shaped love notes all around his apartment, cementing my presence in his life for weeks to come. By June, my efforts have paid off and we're more or less back together. Still, Sawyer remains hot and cold, and I wonder if this is really less exhausting than not having him at all. I tell my friends to suck it up for me this one last time, as they tolerate his existence till July. These are the same friends I've pleaded with time and again not to ever confront Sawyer about his behavior towards me. I would be the one to bear his wrath afterwards in private. They comply with my demands, most of them having emotionally checked out a long time ago anyway. Still, I'm eternally grateful for their discretions in the name of loving me. One morning, I leave Sawyer in bed as I head out to make doubles of our house keys at a variety store near his house. When I get back, the energy feels loaded in the room. I sense it but say nothing, leaning over to kiss him while grabbing my phone which has been charging next to him. Right then, I realize he's been snooping through my phone. What the fuck, Sawyer? I'm out making doubles for us and you're here going through my phone again? I'm exasperated, but shrug it off. What does it even matter anymore? I know he hasn't found anything incriminating, and he apologizes like a puppy caught peeing in a corner. I change my password on my phone for the millionth time and program it to 3007. It's my departure date, and a silent fuck you to Sawyer anytime I unlock my phone. The next day, Sawyer continues to act like a child, picking a fight as we're heading back to my place after running a few errands. He eventually explodes and yells, We're done! and storms down the street. By now, I know he's full of shit. This has always been a game to him. 
If that's the case, I'll need my keys back, please, I yell back. He's already halfway down the street, and in a dramatic flourish, Sawyer takes the keys out of his keychain and throws them on the sidewalk as he continues walking away from me. This time, I'm calling his bluff. I calmly walk over, pick up my keys, and start towards my house. Sawyer did not expect my lack of reaction as I continue on my way. I look back and notice Sawyer trailing behind me two blocks away. He follows me from the same distance the whole way home as I cackle under my breath. July is total denial month as we act like the best couple ever, according to us and only us. I have it in my mind that I'm leaving Montreal forever and begin to view the city through rose-colored lenses and decide to experience Montreal as a tourist before leaving. We walk to the biosphere and wander around the plants and trees, almost at peace with one another. We then visit a museum and in the late afternoon stop for veggie fish and chips, which is basically a large piece of fried cheese. On our way back to my place, we get caught in the rain and I huddle close to Sora as we both giggle in each other's arms, hiding under the roof of a building. The day is turning out perfect, so of course we have to ruin it. At night, we walk over to Typhoon. I haven't worked there in years, but it's become a tradition for us to have our dates there, wolfing down veggie burgers and drinking rounds after rounds of shots while sitting side by side in a tucked away booth. He casually mentions Tracy then, and I turn sour. How dare he utters her name in my presence. I choke on the rage I fight so dearly to suppress, my tears rising. The night is ruined. Sora pays our bill as we then fight all the way home. The next day, we act as nothing happened. Just blame it on the booze. We're on a deadline and have no time for our usual three-day breakup fights. I spend a lot of my nights sleeping over at Sawyer's, cozy on his futon while he practices his upright bass. I cherish these moments the most. Moments where I can picture us having a real future together. A normal couple doing normal things. Three years too late. But then, 11 days before the great escape, Sora keeps up with our traditions and read my journal one last time. He accuses me of sleeping with a random musician from McKibbins. Surprise, I wasn't. And we fight for the very last time face to face. I can't help but to feel nostalgic as I'm finally counting down all of my lasts one by one. It's July 26, 2012, the morning after my going away party. I wake up still drunk at Sawyer's. My eyes dipped in glue as I try to open one lid after the other. The futon's still up as a couch, but Sawyer and I have managed to sleep on it together. We always end up sleeping in this position at least twice a month. I sit upright, my head throbbing, as I look for water on the coffee table next to us. Then I look down at Sawyer and notice his bloody knuckles. Fear washes over me as I wonder if he's gone too far this time. Tears welling up my eyes, I shove him awake. What the fuck, Sawyer? What did you do? I press on, now remembering I took a cab alone last night. It's nothing. It was just a brick wall. But why? Sora rubs his left eye, then looks at his knuckles. I was mad and didn't want to ruin your night. Tears roll down my cheeks. I overheard your friends talking about you and Owen and lost it, so I decided to leave. I cry louder as Sawyer repeats, everything is fine. I look at him, my nose and eyes red. Everything is not fine. It didn't cross your mind you were going to be around my entire family this weekend? What excuse will I use this time? Sawyer takes me into his arm and tries to console me. Everything is going to be okay, he repeats again. I take a deep breath and wrap my arms around his stomach. Okay, let's go. Because today was moving day. I try to shake the sad away as we head to my apartment. It takes the whole day to move. 
Melancholia lingers in the air as we pack up my last boxes into the van. I take my last pictures of the apartment, including selfies of us looking defeated and exhausted. I've had the apartment for the duration of our relationship, and I plan to leave all the bad shit inside these walls, including us. I've packed up our chaos nice and tight into a storage unit the size of a small office. I'm spending my last few days in the city sleeping at Sawyer's. The irony isn't lost on me. It took me leaving for us to live together. Two days later, my time has finally come. I'm finally leaving Sawyer. For good. I wake up at stretch while Sawyer still sleeps beside me as I cup his face in my hand. He wakes up and looks up at me, sadness permeating from within him. Soon he's on top of me as I open my legs up for him one last time. The nostalgia of our relationship is palpable within our every touch. We both let our tears fall as we exchange salty kisses and make love. We barely utter a word, letting our bodies talk instead. Every thrust is a confirmation of our love, as we are still eternally bound together. Later that morning, we make our way to my sister's house for brunch as I give my final goodbyes to my family and close friends. While there, I ask Sawyer to write me one final love note in my notebook, the one I am to bring with me on my travels. One last thing to remember our love by. When he gives my journal back to me, I find his note tucked in the middle of the pages. Baby, there are no words. We are beyond them. Our love is perfect even if we are not. I will always believe that we would have won. You have been my everything since our first kiss. I don't need to say it. XO forever. Sawyer holds on to me for the entire day. Wherever I sit, he'd sit next to me, holding me from behind. The sentiment I felt in bed that morning is wearing thin, replaced now by the slow excitement of my upcoming flight and freedom. It's the only time Sawyer has ever come to the airport to see me off. Even at the airport, he holds on to me till the very end. My friend Kelly is waiting for me at the airport gate as we're set to fly to Amsterdam, spend a week in Europe, and then land in Thailand on my 24th birthday. Kelly will then make her way back to Montreal after our week in Thailand as I continue to the Seychelles. When the time comes to say goodbye to Sawyer, we cry as I hug him for much too long. How can I end this embrace when I know it will be our last? I make my way through the gate as Sawyer turns around and walks away. With every other step, he looks back as I continue to cry and wave goodbye. I watch him turn the corner and disappear, the string that tethered my heart to his finally severing forever. I drop my bags near the door and look around. I can hear the ocean from the open window. I'm finally in the Seychelles. With excitement, I slide on my bathing suit and throw on a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. I make my way down the small entrance to the street and over to the other side. Two years I've been away from the ocean. Two years since I've left Tom on the steps of the Tali in Thailand. And I'm now finally back where I belong. As soon as I breach the sand, I shake my flip-flops off my feet. The hot sand welcoming me home. I breathe in deep as the earthy, salty smell of the ocean mist baptizes my lungs. I walk a few more paces and choose a spot on the beach, roll out my towel and throw my purse on top. I'm playing coy with the ocean. 
I sit down for a while, taking in my surroundings, what will be home for the next three months. Somehow, I've managed to slice open my waking nightmare and have now traversed into a parallel universe. A timeline where maybe, just maybe, I can be happy. I stare at the waves lapping on the shore, a metronome of Earth's frequency, and slowly I recalibrate with every beat. Finally, I stand up, shake off my shorts and shirt, and start towards the water. The waves kisses my toes as I edge my way in, the ocean warm as I walk in even further, the salty water enveloping me like a mother's tender embrace. I float now, up and down with the rhythm of the waves, as I look beyond the water where the sky and ocean meet far off in the horizon. My eyes well up in tears as I sense the power rising from the depths, greeting me. I've made it. I've launched a grenade at my life back in Montreal and walked away. The cinders are still smoldering far across the Atlantic, but here, I'm safe. It will take me most of my twenties to undo all the knots our relationship has left on my soul. But that's for another day, another life, another Naomi. Because this Naomi, the 24-year-old bartender who drinks far too much, who finds love in all the wrong places, who still has no real answers for the chasm of her childhood, needs nothing else but the ocean. Nothing but the ocean and her unwavering belief that one day she will love herself as much as she loved to lose herself. Wow, we're here. It's the end. I don't know how to feel about it. I feel relieved, I think. Um, I feel a little a little jubilant, as I would say. Yeah, I feel a little loopy. But this is it. I'm so happy for, I don't know, once again, thank you for everyone that like got invested like I was uh, throughout this series. And um, this is... This part is not going to be as long as others, just because I think uh, I don't have much else to say. Except, first of all, (laughs) there is a few things. One is, obviously, the breakup wasn't as clean as I made it seem in a memoir. In the memoir, um, our last moments together was in the airport, but we didn't definitely didn't stop talking for at least till October, I think. Um, but I think that's for another story. Because um, I do plan on writing another memoir eventually, maybe one day. And that's definitely part of it. It wasn't a clean break, but hey, this is a memoir and I choose how to, you know, show how it ends. And that was just a clean, a good clean break. Sawyer ended up dating Tracy for like a solid two years after this. Um, So she was the next victim. And the only reason I'm uh, bringing her up is because eventually when I got out of it and started healing my own self and whatever, and I discovered that they had broken up, I actually reached out to her because we had some mutuals and I knew she was a cool gal and, you know, it wasn't her fault, whatever. She was just sort of caught in, t- in, in this, like, weird shit that we were going through. Uh, she didn't really understand either, but I knew he wouldn't have changed. I knew he'd be acting the same way with her. You know, I wasn't fucking special when it comes to his jealousy and whatever. 
So I reached out to her and I was like, hey, <laughs> if you ever want to talk uh, with someone that actually knows how insane he is, I, you know, I'm open. And she was really nice about it too. She was like, yeah, it was fucked up. <laughs> In a weird way, I'm happy that she only lasted two years. Um, I fucking lasted four. I don't know why. But yeah. And I also wanted to talk about the self-harm and eating disorder that I sort of mentioned when I was saying like, finally I had a reason to starve and like I would do those things. I didn't realize I had an eating disorder for ages, for years and years and years and years and years. I didn't realize that the way that I my relationship with food, which comes from a very fucked up place from my childhood, surprise, surprise, um, manifested in just different ways. Like it was never all consuming for me. I never had a, I never had body dysmorphia or I never really had body, body issues in that way. So I never, put two and two together that I might have an eating disorder because my eating disorders were very much related to control and feeling clean, which is a very, to me in retrospect, is a very big sign of trauma, sexual trauma, to, to trying to feel clean, to, to cleanse yourself. Uh, that's where my eating disorder began or started or whatever. And yeah, I would starve myself when I was like, uh, depressed or anxious. I guess I was anxious and I didn't realize it. Uh, but I used to, I used to like puke all the time. So I I was like low-key bulimic. I just didn't know that that's what it was because it was sort of always related to, it had, it was never triggered by, oh, I ate too much. For me, it was just like another way to just like cleanse myself once again. So I used to like drink And then the next day I would like puke so much, you know, and like I relished in it. Like it made me feel good, like, like gagging. And I remember telling Aldo this and he was like, what? Like for me, like gagging, the reflex of gagging felt good. Like it was like a good shiver. Like maybe this is a little triggering. Sorry, I didn't really do any trigger warnings in this one. Um, but like, just like sticking like a toothbrush down my throat was like satisfying. So yeah, so self-harm and and eating disorders were very much there. To me, I consider the, the excess, the excess of how I was drinking self-harm, uh, cause it was fucked. I was in pain every day, headaches, nausea, anything, you know? So, so Yeah. Uh, one other thing before I get into just talking about the astro a little bit is that it's interesting how astrology just sort of like shows its weary head everywhere. Even before I really understood, I always wondered like, why is October and 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 April so, they're, they've always been weird, oddly triggering months for me. Even through that relationship, is they was they were always fucked up. Then afterwards, I would get really triggered during those months, um, and would just assume it because they would remind me of those years. But then, if you look at my chart, you realize that April is Aries season, which is my seventh house. So the sun is moving through the seventh house, 
And October is Libra season, most of it, which is moving through my first house. Those are called angular houses, and they, they're, they're important houses. They're important in a way, especially I find, is because they're very external. You notice them a lot more. They're, they're less subtle energies versus like the eighth house or something like that, you know, or the sixth house. Well, not the, maybe the third house. Or, I don't know. The twelfth house, let's say, is very subtle. But angular houses, which is first house, seventh house, fourth house, tenth house, uh, I find show up a lot more in an obvious way. So looking back, I'm not surprised that those months have been really important for me and have always in a weird way have been really hard for me to navigate. So then um, I looked up the date for July 30th, so when I left. So just to like keep the little tradition alive, Mercury is retrograde. <laughs> so I'm leaving, uh, on the day I leave, Mercury is retrograde, almost conjunct to my son um, in Leo. What I also noticed was... Uh, what else did I notice? Oh, yeah. Um, I noticed that uh, Jupiter is conjunct my own Jupiter. Uh, so I was going through my Jupiter return. Um, and that's the last Jupiter return I've had. And as much as tw- my 23rd year was one of the most difficult years of my life, my 24th year was one of the best years of my fucking life. <laughs> like, it's the the last year since, to be honest, not to be dramatic, that I felt very peaceful and things felt easy. Uh, I traveled for eight, for, for eight months. I mean, some were hard. It's because I was like purging my, my fucking relationship with my ex. Um, so there was a lot of purge happening, but it was also like traveling, connecting to nature. It was the same year that I decided to move back to Montreal. And then eventually I met Aldo that same year. 11 months later. Um, So my Jupiter return was definitely awesome. But what was also very interesting is that my Jupiter, my Jupiter return happens in the ninth house. So during my last Jupiter return, I did a lot of traveling. I was gone almost the entire year, which I thought was pretty cool. And then, uh, then I, I noticed that there was another, there was another action. There was some, some more action. Well, actually Venus was in my ninth house too. But what I thought was interesting was also, have you ever noticed how often I say that was really interesting? (laughs) It's like the thing I say the most. This was like really interesting. Jupiter and Gemini. So interesting. Anyway, um, South Node, and North Node have had just moved into uh, Sagittarius and Gemini. So the South Node was moving through my, my was just beginning to move through my ninth house uh, when I left. So then the last little thing, you know how I, I, I feel like I began episode one talking about cycles that were returning during this moment and I think it's very special and needs to be noted that on um, August 8th, 2012, uh, when I landed in Thailand for the third time in my life, which I I am so grateful for, um, 
it also began my world year. So that was the last time I had the world card for for my year card. For my personal year. Um, and thus began one of the best fucking years of my life where I was actually really traveling. And it and it's funny because the world in tarot is connected to traveling also. I don't I don't really use it as th- as such all that much, but it is associated to traveling. So, um, but why am I saying a cycle is because now I am once again re-entering the world, uh, the world card. It only began about, uh, literally a month ago. I have high hopes for this year, but (laughs) I don't think it will ever translate into the same year that I experienced back then. Uh, my my 24th year but um it's a beautiful cycle once again of closing this chapter um within the world card and so i don't think how i don't even know how to convey how i'll be there's just a lot of gratitude floating around in my brain right now of being here and have and having survived all of it because (laughs) It's been a real rough go. Like, like I try to be I, like as as optimistic as I can, especially on social media and stuff. Like, I I I I do express some of my more down side moments, but I think it's because I know personally that I'm. I don't think it's possible to ever go back down to to the depths that I've been in, and it's just. I sometimes get really shocked in in a grateful, beautiful way that I survived it because my 20s were fucked. Like, because, like, literally, like, this was the beginning of my 20s, okay? So from 19 to 24, this was, was going on. So it wasn't easy. It was an abusive bullshit relationship. And I was, like, deep into self-harm and I was traumatized to the to yahoo and whatever like we all know we just went through 10 episodes of it and then I had this like beautiful pocket of sunshine which was my 24th year and 20 24 25 25 wasn't all that bad either uh, especially because it was like our first like my first few years with Aldo you know the universe had other plans for me and because, and by 26, because Aldo had created such a, such a strong, stable foundation or more of like a container for me to unravel, I fucking unraveled. So I only had about two years of like respite and it wasn't even like, it wasn't even two years because I was still navigating some really fresh wounds, some fucked up PTSD, everything, you know? Um, and then by late 26, right before my birthday, turning 27, I remembered everything like we've discussed in episode three. And then 27 was one of the worst fucking years of my life also, where I wanted to, you know, not exist for the longest time. And it was a very deep, a very dark, dark, dark ass fucking depression and uh, sometimes I don't know how I got out of it. And a lot of it is my sister and Aldo, 100%. And the reason why I'm saying this is because I've went through so, so much 
like darkness that now that I'm healthy and I'm stable and I'm in a loving relationship and my mental health has never been better, um, I can't help but to be grateful, you know, like maybe my life isn't where I want it to be exactly. And like there was a post I shared on Instagram about, you know, feeling like you're behind compared to your peers because you've been surviving this whole time and they've been thriving. So I'm finally in a space where I can thrive. Um, And it's taken forever. I'm fucking 33, you know, and sometimes I feel like it's so late. (laughs) But I also have to remember that I have my entire life ahead of me. And yeah, I'm just really happy and I'm really grateful. And uh, I'm really grateful that whoever's listening has come along with me. And, uh, you know, if I can make it, anyone can make it, to be honest. (laughs) We we, we have this. We've got this. We can all heal from all of this. We're in this together. You know what I mean? Like, no one needs to hurt by themselves. And that's pretty much it, guys. (laughs) I don't know how to end this. So I'm just going to end it. Um, Once again, thank you so much for listening. And um, I'll see you for season three, whenever that is. All right. Bye. One, two, three. Uh...